Welcome to all those of you who are gathered with us this morning uh, to worship our great God and hear his word. It is, as was noted already, Reformation Sunday. And for that reason, we're going to take a break this Sunday, just one week from the Gospel of John, uh, to consider one of the central tenets of Reformation theology, and that is uh, the doctrine of Scripture alone uh, as the final authority for God's people. So I invite you to turn in God's Word to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we will look specifically at verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Let's hear God's Word together. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, For every good work. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks that you loved us when we were unlovely, dead in our sins and trespasses, and sent us a Savior, your very Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you gave your life and rose from the dead that we might be reconciled to God, that we might stand before him holy, cleansed of our guilt and shame. For that we give thanks and praise this morning, Lord. Uh, We also acknowledge the precious gift of Holy Scripture that you've given to us, your people, Father. Thank you, Lord, that you've not allowed us to walk in the darkness, but have revealed yourself to us, have revealed your salvation to us through your word. We pray that you would speak to every one of us this morning, deepening our confidence in Holy Scripture and deepening our commitment to live in its light. Amen. Uh, So as I mentioned, today's Reformation Sunday. Uh, Protestants of every stripe uh, will on this Sunday uh, commemorate that great 16th century movement when men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, Huldrych uh, Zwingli helped the church, the Western church, to recover the gospel, to recover God's grace in the salvation of sinners. Of course, that movement led to a a parting of ways between Protestants and Roman Catholics in the 16th century, Uh, but Protestants will look back to that momentous event five centuries before as their origin. Not their absolute origin, of course, that begins in the 2,000 years before, but Lutherans, Baptists, Presbyterians, non-denominational Christians as well look back to that great moment in history as their their source, the the moment they uh, come into being, and we all, in one way or another, are derived from the Reformation. Uh, Typically, Reformation theology is summed up with the five solas, uh, grace alone, faith alone, uh, Christ alone, uh, Scripture alone, and God's glory alone. These uh, solas, solas Latin for only or alone, these five onlys, if you like, sum up the theology uh, of the Reformation. And this morning we are looking, as I mentioned, specifically at sola scriptura, Scripture alone. The idea that Scripture by itself is the final authority for God's people. And the issue of authority was at the very heart of the Reformation. When Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the the castle church door in uh, October 31st, 1517, Luther wasn't trying to start a reformation. Luther was deeply displeased with the church's practice of selling indulgences, the idea that you could buy your way out of the miseries of purgatory. You pay a certain amount and you get less time in purgatory. Uh, Luther felt that that undermined real repentance, heartfelt repentance before God. So he posted these 95 theses written in Latin, to to raise this issue for academic debate. 
to say this is not consistent with Scripture. But subsequent debates clarified for Luther and others that what was at the heart uh, of, of this disagreement, of this debate, was the issue of authority. Who, who had the right to ultimately decide what the church believed and did? Was it Scripture or the Pope? Luther, of course, left us no doubt uh, about what he thought about this or any other issue. Uh, he spoke very plainly, directly. Luther noted, a simple layman armed with Scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without it. A simple layman armed with Scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without it. Scripture by itself is the final authority for God's people, for the church. We're going to look at that doctrine today. That, that, that doctrine, the sola scriptura doctrine, is often also described as the sufficiency of Scripture. We're going to look at the sufficiency of Scripture as one attribute among several. Uh, but we will also look at other complementary attributes of Scripture this morning. Specifically, we will look at five different attributes. Uh, inspiration of Scripture, authority of Scripture, inerrancy of Scripture, clarity of Scripture, and of course, the sufficiency of Scripture. So first thing we want to say about Holy Scripture is that it's inspired. It has its source ultimately in God. That's precisely what Paul says in verse 16. Scripture is breathed out by God. It's a very vivid metaphor. It tumbles down to us from the very mouth of God. What Scripture says, God says. And it's not simply that God inspired the ideas of Scripture that then human authors wrote down. It's that the very words of Scripture have their origin in God. You'll notice that what is God-breathed in this passage is the written Scripture itself. God's verbal revelation is itself uh, the product uh, of His work. It's His word to us. And notice also that it's not some parts of Scripture are inspired, and they're God speaking, and others are just human beings speaking, you know. Uh, we can believe this passage because it's from God, but this pa other passage of Scripture is not from God. No, notice, verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's all from Him, and therefore selective obedience to Scripture is disobedience. You, can't, you, you don't get to pick and choose which verses you like and submit to. That's a form of disobedience. Uh, we are called to submit to all that God says because it's all ultimately from Him. Scripture has its source in God. It's the very word of God. Uh, this means, therefore, that we can know God truly. We can know his purpose for our lives truly because he is a speaking God. God hasn't left us to grope around in the dark to figure out answers to the big questions of life. He has spoken a word to his people, and so we can be certain about who he is, what he wants from us, and what his plan is. There are many modern people who believe that the great questions of life are ultimately unanswerable. What is God like? Where does man come from? What's the purpose of life? Where is human history going? How should we live? What's wrong with the world and how can it be fixed? Many people believe we, can't, we don't know the answers to these questions. At best, we can speculate wildly about what may be the case, but ultimately we're left to grope in the darkness looking for a meaning that isn't finally there or finally knowable. Against the skepticism, we can have confidence about the ultimate questions of life because God himself has spoken to us in human words. We can know what he's like. 
We can know what's wrong with the world. We can know how we ought to live because God has given his word to his people. In his grace and kindness, he has accommodated himself to our uh, way of communicating that we might know him. So everything scripture says, God says. It is inspired. Second, scripture is authoritative. It ought to be obeyed. Every command ought to be obeyed. Every promise ought to be believed. Why? Because scripture has the same authority that God has. It's precisely because it is the word of God himself that it has his authority and we ought to submit to it. The authority of scripture is a consequence of the first point we made. If scripture is truly the word of God to us, then obviously it has the very authority of God and we have an obligation to submit to it. We are not our own. We are creatures made by our creator. He owns us and thus we have a moral obligation to submit to God. And his word to us reflects his will. And therefore, we have a moral obligation to submit to everything that he says in Scripture. Another way of saying this is that our highest moral responsibility is to submit to every word that God has given us in his word. There's a moment in the life of King David, uh, the king after God's own heart, who, though he was the king after God's own heart, was also flawed. Perhaps his greatest failure was the moment in David's life where he took another man's wife, Bathsheba, and committed adultery. And then to cover up the mess that he made, he had an innocent man, Uriah, killed. When the prophet of the Lord, Nathan, comes to David to confront him over his sin, here's what he says, 2 Samuel 12, 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? In other words, by violating the command of God's word, the command of scripture, you have despised scripture. And in despising scripture, Nathan says, this is God speaking through Nathan, you have despised me. Contempt for the word of God is contempt for God himself, precisely because the word has the very authority of God. When we rebel against it, we rebel against him. Scripture's authority means that our attitude when we come to Scripture uh, needs to be characterized by reverence and a readiness to submit to all that it teaches. We need to have the uh, attitude described by Isaiah in Isaiah 66, verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The one that I will look to, the one that I am pleased with, is who reverences my word and trembles at it and seeks to obey it. The word of God has the authority of God because it's derived from him. That means that whenever there's a clash between authorities, his word ought to trump all human authorities. Uh, This corrects, I think, what is a very common modern uh, idea, namely that the self can be trusted to lead us to truth so many movies and songs that tell us that when we're confronted with a choice in life, if we want to know the right way to go, what should we do? What does your heart tell you to do? Right? What, what, what do you feel is right? Look within and let that inner man, that inner woman, that person inside, listen to that voice within and you will make the right decision. Your heart is basically trustworthy and sound. And we see people operating with that assumption even when they come to Scripture. 
Like you have people say things like, man, the passages about God's love just, they resonate with me. I feel like those things are right and true and good. It's meaningful to me. You get the passages that talk about God's judgment perhaps, and those feel less true. They don't quite resonate the same way. And people who reason this way, notice what they're doing. They're, they're making their feelings, their heart, the ultimate standard of truth. And they're prepared to submit to God's word only insofar as God agrees with them. And wherever God disagrees with what their heart tells them, they go with their heart, not scripture. Some of us are wired to be more emotional than others. And some of us feel very tempted when we have strong feelings in a certain direction to go with our feelings. But be very clear, when scripture clearly is pointing you in a way that's different from your feelings, you need to reject what you feel and submit your feelings to the teaching of Scripture. It alone is the highest authority, because it has the authority of God. Third attribute of Scripture is its inerrancy. There are no mistakes in the Bible, and this also is derived from the first point. If Scripture has its origin in God, and God doesn't make any mistakes, then his word has no errors in it. Everything it affirms is completely true and reliable, and there are no errors. It is internally self-consistent. Something isn't taught in Romans that isn't also taught in Psalms, right? There's no contradiction between the diverse parts of Scripture. It is one beautiful, unified whole, without contradictions, without error. Now, there might be instances where we don't know how two passages of Scripture fit together, how they harmonize. There might be a tension. Uh, but just because we don't know how they fit together doesn't mean God doesn't know, right? It's all harmonious in his mind, and we affirm that it's perfectly true, uh, and internally self-consistent. God's word is without error. This means we should have confidence. When, whenever we see something clearly in Scripture, this is the truth of God. There are no mistakes. We should have confidence that when we build our lives on the teaching of Scripture, we are building our lives on solid ground. This is not just human opinion about how we should live. This is the very word of God that never makes a mistake, and so we are building on solid ground. Fourth attribute of Scripture is its clarity, clarity of Scripture. So in other words, that's another way of saying that uh, Scripture's communication is effective. What good would it be to have a perfect word without error from God that is incomprehensible? We have God's word. We don't know what it says, but we have God's word, right? It's obscure, but it's God's word. Like, that wouldn't be helpful. God's word is helpful precisely because it's clear. The basic teaching of scripture on salvation and our duties to God are clear. Such that a person who picks up the Bible and reads it diligently can understand its teaching on those matters. It's not cryptic. You see it in our passage in this way. Look at verse 16. Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. Uh, the idea there is that scripture convicts us when we go astray shows us where we're wrong, it corrects us, it forms us or trains us in righteousness. Like, how can Scripture do those things if it's not clear? It can do those things precisely because it is clear. We know what it says, and therefore it can teach us profitably. It can challenge us, it can correct us. We can see the clarity of Scripture also from passages like this, Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 6 and 7. God says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The assumption is God's word is clear enough for parents to understand and discuss those words with their children and teach them and have like a, a lifestyle 
of conversation around scripture. Children can understand scripture and that speaks to its clarity. Uh, Roman, Roman Catholics have traditionally denied the clarity of scripture. Uh, scripture is an obscure book, so you need to listen to what the church says about uh, scripture to understand what it means. And implicitly, there was a discouragement to ordinary readers or ordinary Christians to read the Bible. Uh, on the other hand, Protestants have wanted to emphasize, no, scripture is clear, its basic message is clear, and therefore God intends for all of his people to read his word and to read it with profit. God wants to communicate not just to pastors and theologians and academics. He wants through his word to communicate to you and to all of his people. Now, Protestants are also quick to add a few qualifications. I'll give you four. First, not everything in scripture is equally clear. Some parts of scripture are more obscure than others, and the clear parts should be used to interpret the obscure parts. Uh, what God wants us to believe for salvation, what our basic duties are to him, those things are clear in scripture. Some parts are less clear. Second, clarity doesn't mean that effort isn't required. Oh, it's clear, so I don't have to work. No, uh, those of you who have studied anything know that often the more you study, the clearer it becomes, right? Or you think about it, the, the more things come into focus. 2 Timothy 2.7, Paul says to, th to Timothy, think over what I say, so think, think over what I say. Why? For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So as you think, God will give you light. Clarity shouldn't imply that we don't have to work a little bit to understand Scripture. Third, even though Scripture is clear in itself, it doesn't mean that it is equally clear to all. Our sinfulness can keep us from seeing what God has revealed clearly in Scripture. Matthew Barrett, in his book on the authority of Scripture, uh, gives this analogy. He says, look, imagine that someone has mud in their eyes, and they look at the sun and they say, man, the sun's not very bright at all. I don't know if he's talking about how bright the sun is. I don't know, it's not bright. Uh, well, in that situation, the problem is not with the brightness of the sun, but with the mud in the eyes. They are obscuring the brightness of the sun. And in a similar way, when you read scripture with unbelief and pride and a rebellious spirit, it will be an obscure book. Your sin will obscure what is clear to those who love the Lord and seek to walk with him. So obedience to the word of God and a life of fellowship with him can't be separated from the interpretation of scripture. If we want to read it rightly and understand it, there has to be a commitment to obeying it. Fourth, clarity doesn't mean we should be individualistic in our interpretation of Scripture. It's a temptation for evangelicals sometimes. The Bible's clear, I can understand it. Yes, praise God, that's true. But that doesn't mean you should take your Bible, go in the wilderness, and disregard the church and pastors and other believers and the historic creeds and confessions of the church. It's clear, but God also intends for us to study Scripture in fellowship with other believers. The clarity of Scripture should not justify a very individualistic approach to the study of Scripture. We were always meant to read the Bible in community with others. That's one of the things that protects us from coming up with all kinds of goofy interpretations. But having said all that, the basic clarity of Scripture is meant to be an invitation to all of God's people to open it daily and to read it with eagerness. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for professors. Uh, God's word is for all of us, and he intends to make himself known through his word as we read it and meditate on it and feed on it. It's how he renews us according to the image of Jesus Christ. It's how he encourages us in dark times. It's how he rebukes us for our sins and makes himself known to us more and more. This is one of the reasons the Protestants so heavily emphasize the translation of the scriptures from their original languages, Hebrew and Greek, into the language of the people, into German and English. 
uh, there was this belief that Scripture is for everybody. So Luther translated the Bible uh, into German. Uh, the English scholar William Tyndale translated uh, parts of the Bible, New Testament, parts of the Old Testament, into English because there was a conviction that this is for all of God's people. Incidentally, that cost William Tyndale his life at the age of 42. He was strangled to, to death because of his commitment to taking the Bible and making it known in English. And it was a price he would have been willing to pay because he believed that the Bible was for all. He would, agree, he would have agreed with the sentiment expressed by Desiderius Erasmus, who also lived in this period. Erasmus writes, I would that even the lowliest women read the Gospels and the Pauline epistles. And I would that they were translated into all languages so that they could be read and understood not only by Scots and Irish, but also by the Turks and Saracens. Would that, as a result, the farmer sings some portion of them at the plow, the weaver hums some parts of them to the movement of his shuttle, the traveler lightens uh, the weariness of the journey with stories of this kind. That's a very Protestant vision. Even though Erasmus had a complicated relationship to Protestantism. That's another issue. Uh, that's a pro very Protestant vision of the place of Scripture in the Christian life. It's for everybody. You go to work, you're meditating on it, you're singing it. Uh, when you're on vacation, you bring it up for conversation with your family. It infuses all of life. To be, to be Protestant is to have this commitment to opening up God's word with everybody, reading it for yourself and reading it together. Does that characterize you? Are you eager uh, day by day to hear the voice of God in his word? It's a tremendous privilege that he has given to us that we ought not to neglect. So scripture is clear, therefore read it. It's not just for pastors, it's for you. Final attribute of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, under the sufficiency of Scripture, we need to understand two things. First, we need to understand that Scripture is sufficient in the sense that it by itself is the final authority of the church. It's not that Scripture is the final authority next to some other authority with it. It's not scripture and church authority as a, or church tradition as Catholics would have said. Scripture by itself functions as the ultimate and final authority for God's people. Another way to say it is that scripture is not a final authority, it's the final authority. It by itself is the absolute authority we submit to. This distinguishes Protestants from Catholic uh, thought, specifically historic Catholic thought with its two-source view of revelation. You have scripture and church tradition. Protestants would say, no, 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 you have tr tradition, I'm sorry, scripture alone is the final authority. It would also differentiate Protestants for, from those sects uh, that would say God continues to reveal scripture, right? We need more scripture than the 66 books of the Bible. God keeps giving us scripture, you know, all the time, or he's done so recently, uh, Protestants, because they submit to Scripture, would reject that idea. All of the words that we need as God's people have been given to us in the 66 books of the Bible. Now, we need to make a very important clarification at this juncture. If you've not followed along to this point, start paying attention now. Uh, here's, here's a crucial one. Saying that Scripture is the only final authority does not mean that we say Scripture is the only authority. Scripture itself tells us that we have all kinds of lesser authorities in our lives that we should pay attention to to help us understand Scripture. We should pay attention to the great uh, historical confessions produced by the church, 
to help us understand Scripture. They're not at the same level as Scripture, but they are helpful in understanding it. We should pay attention to our pastors, other believers who know Scripture. Uh, we should pay attention to our parents, especially when we're young and we're brought up in a Christian household. We're going uh, to get help understanding Scripture from mom and dad. And so we should pay attention to these lesser authorities. Protestants would not say, just, you know, it's you and the Bible, it's the only authority, and then whatever interpretation you come up with is, is valid and good. No, they would say, Scripture's the highest authority, but you still need to uh, learn from the great theologians of the past, the confessions of the church, uh, the, local, the teaching of the local church and pastors, and so on. These are helpful in understanding the teaching of Scripture. Uh, nevertheless, these lesser human authorities are always under the judgment and authority of God's word, and God's word corrects them, and the reverse is never true. It's never human traditions and authorities that stand in judgment on scripture. It's always scripture that stands in judgment on human opinions uh, and human rationality. I think we need to understand this better sometimes than we do. No one and no thing stands in judgment on scripture. Scripture stands in judgment on everything. Scripture is never on trial. The opinions of men may be on trial by Scripture, but they're never the reverse. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Uh, you know, very often, every couple of years, there's some new book or documentary that challenges the reliability of Scripture, like the Da Vinci Code a few, a few years ago. And evangelical Protestants sort of wring their hands and go, how are we going to respond to this challenge? They're attacking Scripture. And now, obviously, it's good and helpful when our scholars put together books that respond to the claims of these kinds of books. That's helpful. But we should never allow ourselves to be put into the position where we feel that Scripture is on trial. Scripture has to defend itself to the opinion of men. If some slick academic condemns Scripture, so much the worse for the opinions of that academic. It does nothing to diminish my confidence in Scripture. It does say something about the academic, that their opinions are flawed. God's word sits in judgment on all things, but is itself not judged by human rationality and human opinions. There's a story of a, a man and his friends, and they go into this museum with a lot of uh, beautiful art, beautiful paintings, a lot of masterpieces. And the man is walking around from picture to picture and saying, ah, oh, that, that painting's okay. I might have done it a little bit differently than Rembrandt, but it's okay. Oh, that one there is just awful. Ugh, ugly, ugly painting. This finally annoys the museum curator who comes to the man and says, excuse me, sir, it's not the paintings that are being judged in this museum, it's the guest. In other words, you don't sit in judgment on the painting. The painting sits in judgment on you. And the extent to which you don't see it is beautiful, so much the worse for you. <laughs> Change your opinion to conform with the facts. Same thing holds true for Scripture. If you don't agree with God and what he has said in Scripture, so much the worse for your opinion. Does it mean that we should tremble at, oh, how, how can Scripture be made to square with human reason and opinion? God's word is the final authority over all things, stands in judgment over all human opinions, and is not itself subject to human judgments. The second aspect of the sufficiency of Scripture, then, has to do with the fact that God has given us everything that we need for salvation and to live a life of obedience. Uh, everything that we need to know to be saved and to live a God-glorifying life in, in every sphere of life has been granted to us in Scripture. Uh, to, to see this point, 
and the relevance of this point, consider for a moment what would have happened if we had Scripture, and it's God's Word, and it's perfect, and it's inerrant, but it speaks only about a narrow slice of life. Like, let's say God's Word said nothing about parenting. Well, at that point, at least, to figure out what, what it means to glorify God as a parent, you'd have to look outside of Scripture, wouldn't you? God didn't, God's Word didn't say anything about it. You'd have to go to some other source to figure out what it means to live a wise life when it comes to parenting. But the sufficiency of Scripture says that God has given us all the words that we need, not just to be saved, but to be faithful to him in every domain of life. Everything that we need to glorify him, we have in Scripture, to be godly parents, to be godly employees, and so on, is given to us in his word. You can see this aspect of sufficiency in um, verse 17, where the Apostle Paul writes, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Scripture is enough to help you be equipped for every good work. Now, I recognize that in this passage, Paul is especially talking about men like Timothy, men of God who are leaders in the church. But by extension, all of God's people have everything that they need in Scripture to be equipped for every good work. It's enough for salvation and everything that we need uh, in life. It speaks to us about how to, our finances, and it speaks to us about how to raise children and deal with conflict, uh, engage in conflict resolution with difficult co-workers. It teaches us how to work for the glory of God. Scripture is not narrow in its revelation. It's comprehensive. And we need to understand this point because it's possible to be a Bible-believing Christian. You know, God's word is inspired, it's authoritative, but you also have this sneaking suspicion that it's really not relevant for life. The Bible tells us about spiritual things, whatever those are. It tells us about prayer and worship and salvation. But when it comes to the business of life, we need to look elsewhere. When it comes to having wisdom for life, we need to go to alter alternative sources. And there is this subtle doubt that scripture is relevant for the questions that we're asking and the challenges that we're facing. The doctrine of script, uh, the sufficiency of scripture says, when we have these questions and these issues, we shouldn't hesitate to go to scripture because it's not a narrow revelation, it's broad and therefore relevant for all of these different spheres of life. God has something to say to you about your marriage, your finances, how to be a good employee, and so on, because of the breadth of his revelation. Everything that we need for life and godliness, we have in Scripture. And it's precisely because God's word is inspired, authoritative, inerrant, clear, and sufficient, that we can boldly declare with the reformers that God saves sinners by grace alone. Because we have this sure word, we can be confident about the gospel. God saves us not because we earn our salvation through our moral striving, through our prayers and goodness and generosity to the poor. Salvation is a gift, not a wage to be earned. And the reason it is a gift is because his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, bore our judgment in our place at the cross, took the full payment for our sins, and rose again triumphantly. And because he accomplished everything needed for our salvation, God declares us to be right in his sight on the basis of his son's work, which we appropriate by faith alone. We contribute not a drop of merit to our salvation. It's the work of God from A to Z. Jesus has done everything necessary, and so we believe and we live. We believe and are justified in the sight of God because of what his son has accomplished. 
and we rejoice in this great gospel because of the testimony of scripture. Robert Capon nicely and colorfully bring the, brings these two themes together when he writes, the Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure distillate scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. It's virtuoso writing there. Uh, but he captures it well. Like one sip of scripture will intoxicate you with the grace of God. It will be clear to you as you receive this inspired word that he saves sinners from A to Z and our good works contribute nothing. Jesus has done it all. So believe and live is the message of scripture and the message of the Reformation. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have met our need in every possible way. You've sent us a savior to do what we could not do, to die and rise again. And you have given us a perfect witness to the work of your son in scripture. You have truly lavished every conceivable blessing on us. And Lord, we give thanks and we rejoice. We pray that we would leave here this morning with the joy of the gospel in our hearts. We pray that the joy of the gospel would be the aroma of our lives. Amen.